记录华人历程，聚焦世界精彩。三 CW 澳大利亚中文广播电台。Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. This week, we're talking about China's influence on the Australian media. So we cheekily stole their intro music from Melbourne radio station 3CW. We just couldn't resist it. I'm Grant Smith from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR. Today, we're joined by our guests Raymond Chow from Sameway Magazine, that began in 2004, and John Fitzgerald from Swinburne University, who's written extensively on the growing impact of the Chinese state and business in Australia. To start off with, Raymond, to give us a bit of background about the Chinese language media in Australia. How has the Chinese language media landscape changed over the last ten or twenty years? I'm a new migrant here. Relatively speaking, I came in 1997, and、uh, we started the magazine in 2004, which we in Melbourne. We want to at that time there's about、um, 25 to 30 Chinese publication in Melbourne only, and、uh, we at that time we want to have a voice which would be um, uh, helping.、Uh, Chinese migrants to integrate into the mainstream. After twelve years, there's a great change in the Chinese media. We probably are now one of the very few who can be said as independent. Independent in the sense that we can um uh focusing at what happened in Australia. There are more and more Chinese media in different format, in um in uh play media, in、uh, radio. In、uh, WeChat, in other forms, but many of them have the same voice. That is, that、uh, we want to talk more about China, which is, I would say, more like propaganda than uh, uh, that uh, that that people would want people to listen about. Some about business, or、right, some about business. Say, for example,、um, if you want to、uh, doing migration business, you want to find investor from China, you need to be powerful here in in Australia. And I could remember four years ago,、uh, uh, the last time in the Melbourne City election, there was a lady who published、uh, in the front page advertisement about her being、uh, nominated as the mayor of Melbourne, and he and, and she used this advertisement in China to sell apartments. <laughs> and you know, and, and there's a lot of Chinese leaders would produce, you know,、um, saying that yes, we nominate her as a as a mayor, but you, everybody knows that. You don't need nomination for mayor of Melbourne. You just apply for it. So you see, media is being used as a way to show your influence in in Australia. John, I think you did a very interesting experiment、um, on the twenty fifth anniversary of Tiananmen a couple of years ago,、uh, where you brought up Chinese language newspapers to see what they had written about the twenty fifth anniversary. And I think you wrote about how this showed the influence of the Chinese state run media. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that experiment. So I didn't have to buy them; most of them are freely available. Of the eighteen I secured, a number of them. Didn't have any news whatsoever of any kind. We could leave out two or three.、Um, of the remainder, eleven, which did carry news, carried no news of the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre, which would indicate,、um, you know, a majority, if not overwhelming, control of the printed media in Australia, Chinese language printed media, by Chinese corporations or people associated with the embassy and consulate. 
Um, to my surprise, however, I also found that the ABC Chinese language website completely neglected to mention the 25th anniversary, even though it was all over the English language pages of the ABC website. Um, as I recall, there are a couple of articles, um, newsworthy articles about celebrating Confucius's birthday and one or two other things of that nature, but no mention of the massacre. That really intrigued me. Further inquiries indicated that, in fact, the ABC had done away with what it considered sensitive news of every kind in the Chinese language because it was entering into an agreement with the Shanghai Media Group. Uh, and under that arrangement, um, anyone in China would be able to access ABC programs through an online portal based in Shanghai, so there could be no sensitive Chinese language news on the ABC. And so basically did away with it to facilitate that commercial arrangement. After you wrote about this, the ABC actually did a report on Media Watch and they um, actually looked at this phenomenon. I think we have a clip from that. Today, the ABC no longer broadcasts tough stories like that into China in Mandarin, even though Radio Australia still offers hard-hitting journalism in other Asia-Pacific languages like Burmese, Khmer and even Pidgin. Now, when you click on the Chinese link on Radio Australia's website, you end up on the ABC's Australia Plus site, Inside China, where you can read stories on Adelaide dragon boat racing, Chinese buyers swarming for WA honey, and Is Man Flu Real? Sponsored by Swiss. Yes, this ABC site is allowed to carry ads. But what you don't get is real news like this, which was broadcast on our ABC last month. Among the revelations coming out of the Panama Papers, some of the juiciest involve the leaders of China. New details have emerged showing three of the country's top leaders, including the president, have family links to offshore accounts. The Chinese did not get that news on their ABC, even though China correspondent Bill Bertels wrote a story for ABC Online, which could easily have been translated. Bertels' report last week on Tiananmen Square was also a no-show on the Chinese site. Today, when you visit the Australia Plus website, there's no difference. You can read about a boxing match between Anthony Mundine and Danny Green, and there's any cooking show that you care to watch. But there's no mention of the arrest of Crown Casino staff. There's also no Ooh. coverage of the visit of Anson Chan and Martin Lee to Australia, and no prospect of reading about this. Um, but you can read about it in Same Way magazine. What kind of pressures are you facing these days to, if you like, toe the line, Raymond? Yes, we did interview Anson Chen and um, Martin Lee. We published a report um, of the report uh, two weeks ago. I did not receive any call from the Council General uh, because um, we are financially independent. I think that is uh, the most important point for media to be independent. Yes, you've got supporters. You got. You need to have enough funding, not to depend on the Chinese business, because um, most Chinese business will refuse to be associated with. Um, media which um, say something bad about Chinese government. Financially, we are not dependent on a lot of Chinese business. That is why we can still keep our voice um, as independent. But of course, we are not anti-communist government because we know that um, our stand is being Australian, we want to help Chinese to settle down here. 
So earlier I spoke with another Chinese-language newspaper editor based in Australia. His name is Yen Xia, and he's the editor of the Vision China Times, which is a seven-year-old free weekly newspaper. And he had this really interesting story of a whole chain of events that happened back in China. But it's a really concrete example of how the Chinese government, using the Ministry of State Security, in this case pressured an advertiser to withdraw adverts from his newspaper. I'll let him tell the story. This happens all the time, and advertisers have been running ads for a long time with good results. They suddenly stop, citing exceptional circumstances. We know this often happens because of pressure or interference from the government, but there's no proof. This time was different because we had proof. The advertiser thought someone was trying to run a scam. The Ministry of State Security won't tell you their state security. They use very forceful tactics. But the client called the police, and the police acted as a middleman and asked what was happening. Then they came back to our client and told them that these people really were state security. And so there was nothing that the police could do. Raymond, have you ever faced any pressures similar to this, or is this outside your realm of experience? Um, we never face uh, experience like this because, uh, as I said, we are not anti-communist government. We keep our independence by, uh, say, we we try to be impartial. We don't receive money from China. We don't receive money, receive money from Taiwan. We don't receive money from Hong Kong. We just as a community media. And the clip we opened with was of 3CW, uh, which currently owns 16 radio stations around the world. Eight of them are in Australia and New Zealand. Um, They seem extremely well-resourced. And do you feel that in some ways radio is one space because of licensing laws, because of the requirements to have a lot of capital to start up? This is one area that is easily controlled to an extent by the Chinese state. In Australia, there's about 80 to 100 Chinese media around different cities. It is very difficult to get a lot of audience or readers unless you're very good. But for radio, because of the licensing requirement, every every city will only have one Chinese 24-hour radio because um, it costs a lot of money to buy the license. In Perth, in Brisbane, all these licenses will cost more than $300,000. When, and, and nobody, probably no other ethnic languages can bid for it except those who are getting investment from China. And that is why uh, once you have the license, you have the um, channel, you are the only one, 24 hours available. If you got license, you got investment, it is quite easy to develop loyal audience because you've got no other competitors. I mean, what we're seeing is 3CW and it's quite... Uh widespread uh, Chinese language radio network, which is controlled by Tommy Jiang, Jiang Daoqing, who has a number of Chinese radio stations that are linked to the state-run broadcaster CRI. I mean, how much influence do these really have? Tommy Jiang's network is very extensive, uh, eight stations in Australia and uh, 16 in the world. It's very closely connected with China Radio International, Um, I know from a former staffer that occasionally a China Radio International operative sits in on 3CW here in Melbourne and effectively vets what can and can't be said by incoming callers when they have talkback programming. I also know that uh, the Chinese consulate in Sydney 
um, reviews what it, the material that appears on 3CW, and if it feels that some guests are inappropriate, it lets 3CW know and they don't appear again. So there's very direct government engagement in that case. China Radio International is an arm of the state. We saw a very clear example of how Tommy Jang's company, Global CMG, has been used as a propaganda tool in the past. You might remember a famous example from the 2012 National People's Congress in Beijing, where one Australian, Andrea Yu, who at the time was a reporter for Global CMG, was chosen to ask no less than four questions, highly unusual for a foreign reporter. The ABC's then-China correspondent Stephen McDonnell took her to task. Is it a little disingenuous for you to be up here, I, I suppose, with the appearance of being an independent international journalist when really you're working for a Chinese company? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, it, it is uh, interesting, and a lot of people have asked me about that. Um, uh, the fact is uh, I chose to <laughs> be employed by them uh, and I'm representing their company. Uh, so when I ask questions in uh, press conferences and anything like that, um, I'm representing the company as well as representing Australia. The company, uh, though, it, it's, uh, it's, it's controlled from Beijing, right? Uh, well, we, we do have a head office in Melbourne. But, so. but the majority shareholding is from Beijing. That's right, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, that's true. And is that from uh, the Chinese government, Chinese government companies? We have a, a partnership with uh, CRI, Chinese Radio International, which does have a fairly large connection to the government, yes. Because, I mean, you could say that it's as if the Chinese government has brought you up here as a sort of friendly journalist to essentially ask itself questions that it likes about its own performance. Yes, you could say that, but you could only say that if you knew uh, who my company was, and we are fairly, I would say, not very well known at this stage. Here's the Chinese government. They're inviting someone up here. They know that you're working essentially for them, and you're coming up here and asking them questions about their, their own performance. Isn't that right? I, I really don't know if I can answer that question accurately the way you're wanting me to answer it. That was Andrea Yu, who was then working for Tommy Jang's Global CAMG, suffering a vivisection from Stephen McDonnell. CAMG stable includes Melbourne radio station 3CW and five other stations in Australia. John Fitzgerald, why does this influence matter? I think why it's influential, I do think that it is, is that with substantial funding from China, 3CW can sustain 24-hour, seven-day a week, 365-day a year broadcasting. There are a few others that can do that. Um, SBS, for example, offers a few hours a day in Mandarin and it's barely worth anyone's while to tune in. But um, radio is still a popular medium in the Chinese community, in the community more broadly. And there are particular times of day when there are very large numbers of people listening to radio. Uh, in, in the case of China, there's a cashed-up propaganda bureau, China Radio International Connection, and they come in and buy up that space. So basically, um, Tommy Jiang owns the licence, and rents out the airtime to the Chinese Propaganda Bureau. And to listen to China Radio International is to imagine one's back in Beijing. There's more or less no difference. Tommy Jiang's companies have had very bad press in Australia. Recently, there have been a number of pay disputes, two pay disputes, where he's been 
um, fined $250,000 US dollars and two separate pay disputes for underpaying people who were working for them. Um, for example, paying radio presenters just $15 for uh, putting to each program they presented. Do these kind of cases, do they get heard about amongst the Chinese community? Has that hurt the reputation of these radio stations amongst the Chinese community? Or is it something that people just simply don't know about? I think people don't care about it, all right? Uh, I don't think there's a big issue among the Chinese community on that. And in fact, you can see that most of the people who work for FCW, I know, is are volunteers. They don't get anything at all. And it, but it, provide, it did provide a, a channel for new journalists to have experience, to integrate with the uh, society, to integrate with the community, and that is what people are after. So, John, in the last few weeks, a former ambassador to China, Stephen Fitzgerald, who I take it is no, uh, no relative, has said he's written about what he called a now near monopoly control of Chinese language media and censorship of its content in Australia. I mean, is that overstating the case? It's where Australia's heading if we're not there yet. No, Stephen and I are not related. Stephen was my teacher at the ANU many years ago. That's as close as we come to relationship. But I greatly value his participating now in this national conversation about who owns Australian media. I think, um, on the whole, there's a lack of appreciation of the way media works in China and the differences, uh, the different environment within which media operates here. Um, Here the assumption is... If one can, has access to media, one may be able to influence outcomes. This is a democratic and open country. One is appealing to a community which votes or which can make its, its voice felt in other ways. And over time, it will impact on policy or government or on business. That's not how media works in China. Within China, all media is controlled by the Central Propaganda Bureau. It's authoritative. It's a messaging system. It's telling you what you may or may not say today. The way media operates, it's out to tell people what the government is thinking today and, you know, what the situation is in the world and how China's positioning itself to advantage its people and so on. The media that's run out of China here operates on the same principle. It's not actually out to persuade. It's out to tell us what China's thinking. In effect, to warn us. If you look at the articles on the South China Sea that have appeared or the Chinese language programming on these issues on Chinese radio stations, funded from Beijing, they take the form of warnings. They're not really trying to persuade us of anything. They tell us that China's sending out so many ships and anyone who gets in the way is in trouble. Um, So it's in a sense a misunderstanding to think that, so to speak, control of media leads that we should be focusing on content and what it's doing. Control is control. China's not trying to influence. It's trying to change Australia. And the idea that there's a sort of Australian agency in all that is a bit misleading. Just the way in which China itself can purchase space is already changing Australia. This generally doesn't happen, that foreign governments buy up 24 hours of radio stations. That's changed Australia. Um, Similarly, the way in which the government deals with the Chinese government has dealt with the ABC, and the ABC has, in my judgment, compromised its core values. That's changed Australia. The way in which... Um, Fairfax and Fox and others have entered into deals with the Propaganda Bureau in order to circulate 
Propaganda Bureau material as if it's news material rather than an advertisement from Kmart, that's changed Australia. So Australian values are being tested, challenged every day. And insofar as Australians yield to those challenges, Australia has changed. And I think um, Stephen Fitzgerald is sort of affirming that view, that Australia's sovereignty is at risk. The way China operates, it wants to control and capture the media space in this country, leave no space for other voices in the Chinese language, eliminate them as far as possible, and then link up its sort of discipline and control over media with its organisational networks in this country through community organisations in really to change Australia and the way in which Australia works. Now, this is, as, as Raymond has been saying, on the organisational side and in much of the media side, this is this change is led through business deals and negotiations, not directly through government. But there can be no doubt that um, China Radio International, which is an arm of the Central Propaganda Bureau through the State Council, is directly involved. Similarly, Xinhua, which is a party state uh, news agency, and the placement of the government's um, online media, uh, print media, and radio media through China Radio International and through Xinhua is a very direct state intervention in the way in which Chinese Australians learn about the world and are instructed on what China's plans are. You've written a great deal about the history of, of the United Front. So these organisations have been around for a very long time. I mean, nearly, in the case of the United Front, uh, nearly a century. What's changed in the United Front's operation as it relates to the media? Uh, is it just simply a matter of ch the Chinese state and Chinese businesses having more resources at their disposal to carry out their mandate? So the United Front strategy is, as, it, as its title suggests, a wartime strategy that assumes that there are friends and enemies of China or the Chinese Communist Party. And the United Front is an attempt in dealing with the enemy to identify its soft underbelly, so to speak, tickle it and bring some people on side and eventually the enemy collapses. This is how the Communist Party overcame the government of China, the nationalist government in 1949 after the anti-Japanese war in which the nationalist government basically led the national resistance and defeated the Japanese and was exhausted in the effort. The nationalists were thoroughly penetrated by communist agents working under the United Front strategy. So it's a strategy of subversion in times of war. My question for China is, who are the belligerents here? Who is at war? What is it about Chinese-Australian communities that makes them friends or enemies of the Chinese state? Is this an appropriate question to be asking? Surely, in the 21st century, in a globalised world in which we have mass communications and movements among people and trade dependence, we don't need to think about relations among enemies or friends and enemies. We should all be partners in this endeavour and China should do away completely with its United Front strategy, with its United Front department and with this subversive and underground way in which its organisations work in this country, including the Communist Party itself. Bear in mind, Hong Kong is a sovereign part of China. China rules Hong Kong. Now China, Hong Kong obviously has a measure of autonomy, but it's part of the Chinese state. The Chinese Communist Party is an underground organisation in Hong Kong. That is, the sovereign state power in China will not show its face, even in parts of China. And Hong Kong, in this respect and in others, is uh, sort of foreshadows a future for Australia in which it's not that China will influence what Australia does, 
It will simply change who we are. And that's what's happened in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been changed, not influenced. And the risk is, if we do not recognise what is happening now, it may be too late. And I think Stephen Fitzgerald was making this point as well. It's um, an interesting point. And actually, I asked Yen Xia another question, which was how successful this Chinese government strategy towards media and information has been in Australia. And I think his answer was quite interesting. This Chinese government strategy has been quite successful in Australia. Because the Chinese language media and Wei Xin are the biggest news sources for Australia's Chinese-speaking population, and in particular the new arrivals. Now Wei Xin is already controlled by the Chinese government, and if the Chinese language media here is controlled, then all the information that Chinese speakers here see is in line with government messaging. So this strategy has had considerable success, but it's harmful for Australian society as a whole. Because we take an independent position, We find it very hard. Chinese people believe our standpoint is wrong because it's different from everyone else's, even though it's the same as the mainstream Australian media's. Raymond, are you having a similar experience? I could tell you my experience. Two years ago, there was a Chinese media conference in China. um, I had sent my representative there um, to attend the conference by the United Front. And at that time, it is umbrella revolution in Hong Kong. And immediately, all right, um, uh, there were some, some people who initiated a declaration which would need to be, would, would be pushed to be signed by all the Chinese media around the world. And uh, we were invited to sign. I said, no, we're not interested. What was in the declaration? Condemning the umbrella revolution in Hong Kong as, uh, you know, unacceptable, etc., you know. We did not sign, but I think more than 20 Australian, Melbourne Chinese media signed. So when you say whether, you know, we could feel the pressure, it all depends on how we view ourselves, who we are serving. If we think that we are doing a business, we want more business client, you think China is a good market, you might say, I don't care, I sign. And that is being used, not in Australia, not in Australia, it's being used in China to convince the Chinese people that what happened in Hong Kong is unacceptable, even around the world. So what we're looking at, you know, um, it is not just propaganda to Australian Chinese, but also to Chinese in China or around the world. And that is something that uh, I think Australians should know. That's a really interesting point, Raymond. And Bill Callahan from the University of Manchester, who's an international relations scholar, makes a very interesting point that when we normally think of soft power, we think of soft power in an American sense, that it's positive message and that it's internationally focused to win friends. But China's soft power efforts, by contrast, are often focused on the Chinese domestic audience and have a negative message for Chinese citizens in the sense that your China dream isn't just about a positive dream as the American dream purports to be. It's more about what you can't dream about. And media in countries such as Australia, as you were saying, serves this purpose of feeding back into China and telling them, look, this is what people think overseas as well, thus legitimising the message. John, has, has that been your experience as well? Yes and no. I mean, it's true that... Um uh, much of the China's outreach in media is then reflected back into China as good news stories. 
Um, but within the Sinosphere, which is to say the Chinese language community abroad, including Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and you know, North America, Australia, I think there is an effort to engage and discipline the Chinese community overseas. So it's not just about the Chinese community at home, it's the Chinese community globally. So that's simply to qualify. I think generally speaking, um, the Propaganda Bureau and others have given up on trying to persuade non-Chinese, say in Australia or North America, for the most part, it couldn't care what they think. Rather, it's messaging to them the consequences of what they're thinking. Whereas within the Chinese community, there is a, an effort to persuade, manage, discipline and control. Now, you pose the question as an open question, if you like, to China. Why are you sticking with this framework of friends and enemies, which hasn't gone far beyond Mao's who are my friends, who are my enemies speech all those years ago? What do you think? Why, why does China need an enemy? Well, there is an argument that the, the Chinese Communist Party within China has always required an enemy. And now that it's extending its power abroad, it's, that's its MO. It operates around a friend and enemy framework. But when I have mentioned to some senior Chinese foreign policy and international relations experts that perhaps they should reconsider the United Front policy, they sort of shrug or throw up their arms in some perplexity, saying, you know, that's the party, that's the United Front Department. It's got nothing to do with the foreign ministry and with us international relations specialists. We don't get it either. That's the message I get back. So I suspect there's some division within China on this issue. Although I imagine the division is pretty minimal, that on the whole, the United Front Department being very closely linked to the party and state council, it's a very senior organisation. It does outrank the foreign ministry. Oh, it outranks <laughs> the foreign ministry. So if the foreign ministry is at all embarrassed, it has to live with that embarrassment. And coming back to the earlier points that you were making about uh, the ABC's behaviour and its uh, China-based material that's uh, run on it. It's Australia Plus Channel. This is something that you've been very vocal about. And after you wrote some articles, the ABC came back with quite a strongly worded statement saying that they had never entered into an agreement with China or any country in regards to censorship of the content and that their services remain independent. Did this go any way to assuaging your worries? Um, I didn't suggest they'd entered into a formal agreement. Rather, I said they'd done away with news entirely. So the issue of editorial control doesn't arise. I mean, it's all too convenient. No, but what Media Watch did was, was pin them down. It found that not only had it eliminated its Chinese language news service, but that, in fact, it briefly resurrected it during Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's visit and then censored articles that appeared in English in one form on the ABC and in Chinese in another, in which sensitive paragraphs were deleted. So the ABC actually doctored its own news services between the English and Chinese versions, both of which were available on the Australia Plus CN website. And I think that's, that's something that really needs an explanation. How do you see this media strategy in Australia playing out, do you think that Australia is almost being used as a test case for other countries in the world? I think Australia is just part of it. We are not alone. This happened in the United States. This happened in Canada. You sometimes mention it's a, a China stage this to happen. But I think you might have overlooked that sometimes it is not from the government. 
is from the people who work in the media themselves, which contribute to this phenomenon. Like, for example, journalists trained in the Western style and journalists trained in China would operate in a different mode. If they were being trained in China, some of them may choose not to report something bad or something that they, they think not acceptable. And John, do you think that there is enough discussion now about the role that China is playing in in media discourse? In Australia, I think we're sitting here now in what, October 2016. I'd say since June, July, up to the present time, there's been um, a great deal more conversation than there has been for years past on China's engagement in media, China's connection with the electoral processes, um, China's participation in um, business and public organisations, China's engagement in universities, um, which is has to be a good thing and which is alerting our middle management and leadership at the institutional level to some of the risks of dealing with China. These risks need to be managed. It's not going to go away. And there's much to be said for promoting a, a good relationship between China and Australia. I think we'd all like to see that. But risk management is a critically important part of that at the institution to institutional level. Now, governments can have good relations with one another or not, but much of the business in Australia is not happening between governments. It's been ha happening between institutions and businesses. And so the... I think the, the big learning, so to speak, that Australians are taking away from the last four or five months is that um, everyone needs to be alert to what's going on in their institution and its relationship with China. I've been working in this field for decades and I have to say I'm a bit taken aback by what I've just heard. Many thanks to our guests, Raymond Chow and John Fitzgerald, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and show notes on Facebook to learn more about Raymond and John. The Little Red Podcast is recorded at Hallwood Recording Studios, University of Melbourne, by Gavin Neighbour. In our next episode, we'll take you to Shanxi and Inner Mongolia to talk about the politics of resettlement in rural China. Bye for now. We're 非常记录